church and um, I'm getting hooked up here. All right. If you are visiting with us with us this morning, welcome. Consider yourself family. Hi, Debbie. Happy Easter. Awesome to see faces we haven't seen for a long time. Uh, if you're new here, just make sure you grab a welcome bag. They're by the front, uh, the main entrance on your way out. I'll tell you a little bit more about us. Um, and what, one uh, quick announcement before I get into the sermon. Um, so there's something new starting in this geographical area. It's very exciting. It's about time, I think. A lot of churches are getting together now every couple weeks, several churches coming together for a worship event. And there's nothing, I don't think I've ever experienced anything quite as powerful as worshiping with various churches. Different opinions and beliefs on doctrine, you know, not the big stuff. But when we come together for, and we worship together, it's so powerful. So we've been meeting at a different church each time, and it's amazing. And we're going to be at our church. We're going to be right here Saturday night at 7 o'clock. It's probably going to be loud. <laughs> we're not going to be singing hymns, I don't think. But it's going to be an awesome time with lots of other churches. So put that on your calendar, Saturday night here at 7 o'clock. Um, Okay, well, today is Easter, also known as Resurrection Sunday. It's my favorite day of the year. And so my title this morning is The Seven Implications of No Resurrection. What if there was no resurrection of Jesus from the grave? What would the seven implications be? And Paul lists them for us. Someone asked me... Um, once, what are you certain of? We were having a philosophical conversation about certainty. You ever talk to someone who's so certain about everything, so certain you can't get a certain in word in edgewise if you try it? And so I was keenly aware that if I said anything regarding the person of Jesus Christ, sometimes certainty concerning that can fall on deaf ears. And I was aware of that, so I said, if I am certain of anything, I am certain that love is the most powerful force in the universe. And I think it landed softly. And it was truth, you see, because God defines himself as love. God said, I am love. And so if love, then, is the most powerful force in the universe, then we can say that it was love that was powerful enough to raise the dead. The Bible says in Romans, God hath raised him, Jesus, from the dead. Love raised Jesus from the dead, and love is powerful enough to raise you from your spiritual death. That is the message of Resur Resurrection Sunday. So I'm going to start reading uh, from Matthew 28, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> this is just the brief, brief history of the resurrection, just to set the backdrop here. Matthew 28, verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James. It says, Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb. That was Jesus' mother. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. (laughs) I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. I want to divide this into two parts today. I'm going to speak to the mind and then speak to the heart. Because if you're somewhat of a natural skeptic like me, my mind was the doorway to my heart and coming to believe this. Um, not everyone is wired that way, but, but a lot of us are, and it's very important to me that people understand that we have a reasonable faith. Reason is not the, the opposite of faith. It's the sister of faith. In fact, I could illustrate that by saying, I have faith that my husband loves me and that he's a good man, but my faith is attached to reason. I have reason to believe that because I have experience being married to him for 27 years. So it's a reasonable faith I have in my husband. And once you experience this new life in Christ, you realize this is a reasonable faith. But it's not just a matter of experience. It's a matter of evidence. It's a matter of evidence. So... Authentic Christianity, as we know, hinges on the literal, we're we're talking about a literal bodily resurrection. That's very important because if Jesus only resurrected spiritually and he's some spirit wafting through the universe somewhere, well, then that's all we're going to be, and that kind of sounds boring. You know, Jesus resurrected bodily, and the Bible promises us so will we have a brand new physical body to enjoy for eternity. Flawless, perfect, healed, and whole body, soul, and spirit. That's amazing to me. And so that's the the importance of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. English philosopher Richard Swinburne calls the resurrection the signature of God. That's how important it is. So it's very important that we understand that Contrary to what a lot of people think, this belief in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a belief for simple people, simple-minded people. (laughs) If that's true, then you'd have to take that up with the very intelligent likes of Galileo and Kepler and Pascal and Newton and Mendel and all the other thousands of intelligent minds through the centuries, who embraced, without apology, this truth of the resurrection. The atheist scholar and archaeologist Sir William Ramsey, who lived around the turn of the 19th century, he was an atheist, 
but he was also an archaeologist. So he went to the Holy Land in order to disprove the historical account of Jesus in the book of Luke and Acts, including Jesus' resurrection. And after being there a while and employing his archaeology skills and his smarts, he returned to England, an English convert, and he said, Christianity is the religion of an educated mind. Isn't that a relief? <laughs> Philosophy scholar Matt Nelson, he wrote an article titled, Why Atheists Change Their Mind, and he listed all the reasons. And the top reason he said that atheists convert to Christianity is because they are reasonable and they're honest, intellectually honest. They are willing to follow the evidence wherever it leads. You may be familiar with Lee Strobel, the investigative journalist from Chicago, whose wife converted to Christianity, and he figured, well, she's joined some cult. I'll take a weekend. Give me a few hours. I will disprove this resurrection thing, and I'll yank my wife out of that cult, and we'll all be good again. Well, through the course of his research, reasonable, reasonable honest inquiry, he is now one of the leading apologists for Christianity. And he posted an article just briefly detailing the evidence for the resurrection, and I posted it on our Facebook page, so you can find that there. Renowned sci-fi author John C. Wright distinctly recalls a prayer, he said, as an adamant atheist. I love this prayer. <laughs> this is what he prayed, and I quote, Dear God, I know that you do not exist. Nevertheless, as a scholar, I am forced to entertain the hypothetical possibility that I am mistaken. So just in case I am mistaken, please reveal yourself to me in some fashion that will prove your case. If you do not answer, I can safely assume that either you do not care whether I believe in you or that you have no power to produce evidence to persuade me. If you do not exist, this prayer is merely words in the air, and I lose nothing but a bit of my dignity. Thanking you in advance for your kind cooperation in this matter, John Wright. I think that was his way of saying amen. <laughs> Wright soon received the answer and effect he did not expect. He says this, something from beyond the reach of time and space more fundamental than reality, reached across the universe and broke into my soul and changed me. I was altered down to the root of my being. It was like falling in love. Falling in love. Wow. When you set out to investigate evidence, <laughs> you end up falling in love. That's, dis that's discovering the gospel of Jesus Christ. But not everyone goes looking for truth. <clears throat> Such was Saul of Tarsus. He was a terrorist of his day. He went around persecuting and arresting Christians. <clears throat> uh, about after the time of Jesus, well, during the time and after the time of Jesus' death and resurrection. And one day, on his way to Damascus, doing his religious duty to persecute the infidels, those who had left his faith to join this 
person who claimed to be the Messiah and was crucified. One wonders, why did he still need, I guess he was trying to, to quell a movement. I mean, because if Jesus was still dead, he was certainly no threat. But the problem was his followers were out there proclaiming his resurrection. At the threat of death, wouldn't it have made him wonder about that? So he's on the road to Damascus, and he sees this blinding light. And this voice, the voice of the resurrected Lord, says to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And if you know the story, and you can read about it if you don't, it's in the book of Acts chapter 9. God changes his name to Paul. He goes on to write 13 books of the New Testament, including the famous love chapter about God's unconditional love, and he shows us how to love each other unconditionally. Saul of Tarsus, the terrorist and persecutor of Christians. So I want to look at what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 today. Paul is writing about the resurrection, and he's giving record and report of it to the church in Corinth, and he's reminding them of the eyewitness evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in this passage. Yes, this is the very Saul that I just spoke about, now called Paul. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And when he says the scriptures, he means the prophecies. The hundreds of prophecies that were spoken about Christ, and in particular these that were spoken about his resurrection. You can find them in Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and so on. That's what he means when he says, according to the scriptures. So he says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. See, he's reminding them that, hey, this is fulfilled prophecy. He's reminding them of the scriptures they know but never made the connection to Jesus the Messiah. And that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, then by the twelve, the disciples. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. And note this, of whom the greater part remain to the present but some have fallen asleep. In other words, some have died. So he's writing this report, and he's sending this letter to the church at Corinth, and he's saying, hey, a lot of these 500 people who saw the resurrected Christ, they're still alive. Go talk to them. Check it out. And then he says, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Those are sort of disciples. They are They are ones who are sent out with this good news of the gospel. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. I want to point out just for a minute Do you ever wonder why, if you've read this passage, 
Why does he need to name Peter and James? He says, Cephas, who is Peter, he says, he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, and then he goes on to say, after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. You know why he had to point them out by name? Well, Peter denied Jesus <laughs> after hours earlier saying to Jesus, I will never deny you. I will never leave you. I am with you to the end. Hours later, Peter denies Jesus, flat out denies him with cursing and profanity. Paul is pointing out to us that it sounds like Jesus really made it a point to show up just for Peter first. Peter, don't condemn yourself anymore. There's no more condemnation. Peter, Peter, I'm alive. Rise up out of that condemnation and guilt to new life, Peter. Look, it's all redeemed. It's all of it is redeemed. And then he must have shown himself to James. You know why? James was his brother. James doubted his own brother, Jesus, until he saw him resurrected. How beautiful that Jesus would show up for the denier and the doubter. Hear me this morning. Jesus will especially go out of his way to show up face-to-face with a personal encounter for the denier and the doubter. That's the hope of Easter. And then from there, Paul goes on to give us seven, seven implications for there being no resurrection. In verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 13, he's going to list seven things that we would expect if Jesus had not risen from the dead. He says this, but if there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then number one, here's number one, our preaching is empty, If Christ is not risen, I am simply giving you a nice speech. And honestly, you and I both would have better things to do on a weekend than come serve a literally dead religion in which there is no hope of eternal life. No hope of resurrection for you and me if Christ did not rise from the dead. That would mean, number one, our preaching is empty, meaningless. And I can tell you that sure enough, there are churches all over America, even right this minute this morning, who are preaching an empty message. There are preachers in pulpits who will stand up this morning and read the same passages of Scripture I am reading, and yet at the same time in their hearts do not believe in a literal bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's true. Their preaching is empty. Plain and simple. It's empty. It's valueless for your life. And then he says, number two, not only is our preaching empty, but your faith is also empty. Your faith is intellectually bankrupt if there is no resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, what do you have faith in? I mean, really, if if God himself could not overcome the grave, 
what is our faith in? A founder of just another religion who died just like all the other founders of all the other religions. Our faith is bankrupt. And then he says, and number three, yes, and we are found false witnesses of God. False witnesses of God. See, in that phrase right there, he is attesting to the fact that they were eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. The apostles on the streets of Jerusalem proclaiming boldly that Christ had risen from the dead and ending up being martyred for it. In fact, if Christ had not risen from the dead, they were, they were killed on the grounds of being a false witness. Paul is saying that would be the case. And I standing here and all of us who proclaim this are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up. If, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. See, I would never want to give my life, spend my life preaching this message, and end up realizing, wow, I was a false witness. I was a false witness of God. And yet for hundreds of generations, for the last 2,000 years, people have willingly given their life and martyrdom for something they know in the core of their being is the truth. There is a better life to come. It's the real life to come. It's the ultimate reality. They will be resurrected to new life. And then he goes on to say, and this is number four, and if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. See, first he said your faith is empty. That's like without reason, intellectually bankrupt. Now he's using a different Greek word, futile. In the Greek, it actually means your faith is a profitless idol. It's vanity. Have you seen people embrace Christianity as a religion and it's all vanity? It's all for show. But you know what's behind that show. You ever seen that? A profitless idol, a show, and yet it never changes them. It never changes who they are outside of Sunday morning. That's what he is saying. Your faith is futile if Christ is not risen. And he qualifies that with number five. He says, in fact, you are still in your sins and I'm going to come back to that as I close, what it means to be still in your sins. And then number six, if Christ is not risen, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Whoa. All our loved ones, those who leave this earth, that's it. They just, they leave the earth. There's, there's no hope for a resurrection. There's no hope for spending eternity with each other. This is it. All those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, and then he says this, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, 
And I love this. It's so true. We are of all men the most pitiable. It literally means miserable. I would agree. I would agree. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, of all people in the world, we Christians are the most miserable. Why is that? Because we're putting on some show professing something that is not actually true. Why are we miserable? Because the Christian life involves sacrifice. That's the very definition. It's a sacrificial life. But if there is no hope for resurrection in the life to come and in my everyday life, there is hope for resurrection. I can rise up out of sin, and I'll talk about that. If that is not true, yes, I'm miserable because all the sacrifice is in vain. But the resurrection makes sacrifice worth it and valuable. The Bible refers to our sacrificial lives as a pleasing aroma to God and much more, but that's another sermon. You might say, well, faith, that's all fine and good. This all applies to the person, but what about the world and planet Earth? How does the resurrection make the world a better place? It's so messed up right now, so chaotic. It looks so hopeless. Things are going from bad to worse. You see, when mankind fell in the Garden of Eden, so did the planet. But the resurrection redeems us when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. It redeems us and also gives hope for a restored earth. God is bringing everything, going to bring, as he promised in Revelation 22, everything back to its true order redeemed mankind, and a restored planet. It all ties into the hope of the resurrection. Now, I want to go back to where Paul says, the fifth point, if Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. Let's just think about that. What would that mean to be still in your sins? I know that term, sin, to a lot of people, sounds archaic and irrelevant. And to a lot of people, it's just a, a subject of, of, of non-interest. And I understand that, but we, we need to define it properly. The Bible, in its original language in the Greek, the word sin is an, is a, uh, an archer's term. It means to miss the mark. See, God had a design for your life, a bullseye for your life. He had a divine intent for creating you. He had, he had a way that he wanted you to live and be. And every time you and I sin, it's as though we, we, we miss that mark. But it's not just a matter of actions and breaking the rules. It's being born into this world of sin and being born with a sin nature that causes me to never even miss it and never even hit it in the first place. It's like I'm always living life from the age of two when I first learned the word no. And even before that, I was never hitting the mark, missing the mark. I was born in sin. I was born sinful. N.T. Wright defines sin as a failure to be genuinely human. What does it mean to be genuinely, hu genuinely human? It means to reflect the image of God. 
We are called, we were created to reflect the image of God to the world, to show the world, hey, this is what God's like. And only when Christ comes in you by his Holy Spirit indwelling you at salvation, at spiritual rebirth, only then can we begin to properly be human, to begin reflecting the image of God to the world. We start hitting the mark. See, sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin involves the whole entire spectrum of everything from gross immorality to self-righteousness. This idea that my righteousness is sufficient, I don't need an exterior savior, thank you. I'm good by myself. And that's the most dangerous place to be because what if you find out too late? that you were wrong. When I was about probably 10 years old, I grew up in Florida, and I grew up very close to a lake, ironically called Clear Lake, but it was very murky and eventually became full of alligators. But at this point in this story, there must not have been too many alligators or we weren't worried about it because we were swimming in the lake and there was kind of a beach area and people would go there to swim. And this one evening right around sunset, I was there with some friends and we had a little John boat, just a little simple boat, no motor, and it had a rope attached to it. And we were playing around in the shallows of the lake. And the boat was capsized, and we were just playing around and splashing around this boat. And I decided, I know if you know me, this will shock you. I decided to swim under the boat and see what it would be like underneath. See if I could find a pocket of air and just hang out for a while. So I did. I swam under the boat, and I came up, and sure enough, there's a few inches of air. Well, I'll just hang out here. This is pretty cool. I'm under the boat. I can breathe. But my friend, for whatever reason, I still don't know till this day, was outside and he took that rope and he just started jiggling the boat like that with the rope. Just I don't know if he was talking and distracted. I don't know what he was thinking. But all of a sudden, I lost my air pocket. The water came splashing up into that space and I could not find a space to breathe. And I began to panic. And I tried to scream, only I couldn't because the water was coming into my mouth. I had no more air. I started gasping for breath. And at one point, somehow I was able to, to get out of my voice. Ha, stop! And I don't know, I still don't know if my friend actually heard me or just got the idea to stop. And eventually the boat was overturned, and I came out gasping for breath and panicked and screaming, what are you doing? I couldn't breathe. I almost drowned. See, when Paul says, if Christ has not risen, you are still in your sin, your sins. If that murky lake is sin, to be still in your sins is to live a life gasping and sputtering every day because of the effect of your sin nature that it has on you. You know what effect your sin nature has on you? Guilt, shame, condemnation. Not ever able to fully breathe in the life of Christ that brings liberty. <gasps> I am loved and that's all that matters. That is freedom. That is freedom. And for a few minutes, I wasn't able to breathe. 
all I was taking in, in effect, we can say figuratively, was sin. It was slowing me down. It was taking my breath away, sucking the life out of me. Paul is saying, if Christ has not risen, you live there. That's your life. That's where you live. You might come up for air every now and then and get a little quick gasp of breath, but most of the time, you're just trying to stay afloat. And the message of the cross, the message of the cross is that God said, hey, I hear a voice. I hear you. You don't even know it necessarily, but I know you need rescue. So what am I going to do? I'm going to send my son, Jesus, the second person of the Godhead, still God, but I am going to send him to you as a human to rescue you, and he is going to go down to the bottom of the lake, if he has to, to get you. And he did. And he did. Romans 6 verse 3 tells us this. Romans 6 verse 3 says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This word, that's a whole other teaching that's, uh, that I love because we get messed up when we, when we see that word walk, we think of behavior. Oh, great, okay, I'm going to try to walk in newness of life. Well, I'm not walking so well today. Wow, okay, now I'm condemned again. No, that's not, that's not the gospel in our everyday life. To walk in newness of life is to think in newness of life, to believe in newness of life, to know I am free. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. It's a mindset. Oh, that's my favorite message, but I can't go there today because time. Anyway, knowing this, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this that our old man was crucified with him, that is, our old nature was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Greek, rendered inoperative. Rendered inoperative. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. See, when I was under that boat, in a sense, I was enslaved to that water coming, in my, coming into my nose and my mouth. I couldn't get away from it. I was literally chained to that sin. But it says, for he who died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, that is, if you and I identify with Christ in his death, we believe that we shall also live with him right here right now today and for all eternity eternal life begins the moment you say i do 
to Jesus Christ. It doesn't begin when you take your last final breath on this earth. It begins the moment you say, help, I'm drowning. And when he sets you free and brings you out of that water, the waters of death and condemnation, shame and guilt, and yes, self-righteousness, it's a sin. When he brings you out, it says, he who died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Look, do you think death has dominion over Jesus anymore? Do you think Jesus ever has a day when he, where he says, oh, man, I really blew it. I really blew it. I got to do better. Well, this is telling me that I can live with him. I can identify with him in his resurrection. I can walk in newness of life. This is telling me that I have not only permission, but I'm commanded to have that new mindset. I'm a new creation in Christ. I'm free. I've been set free. I am no longer in my sin. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And I love this word, likewise. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God and Christ Jesus our Lord. If Christ did not rise from the dead, you are still in your sins. But if he did, and if you believe it, and if you take it for yourself today, and you say, yes, I believe you actually rose from the dead, and I take that personally, and today I want to rise to new life in you, Jesus. I want to be free. I want to be free. He will set you free from the effects of sin that you have felt all of your life. Romans 10, verse 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart. See, belief is a heart matter. It, a person can be confronted with all the evidence in the world of the resurrection. They can have it all laid out there right in front of them, every bit of it, the archaeology, all of it. Even the science as evidence. They can have it all and still say, nah, because it's a heart matter. It's an issue of the heart. That's why it says, if you believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made and to salvation. In closing, I just want to tell you one more quick story about what this looks like in my everyday life to not have to still be in my sins. I was recently struggling with something, really struggling with something, struggling to the point where it had me so down. It was getting me so down. And I told a friend, I just don't know who to talk to about this. I could talk to my husband. He's a wonderful listener, but he couldn't fix it. I needed to process. I needed, actually, I needed freedom. 
what was I doing? I was feeling the effects of a fallen world and that old fallen nature that I was born with that has been rendered inoperative through the cross. I was forgetting that that's not me anymore. And I was sinking back. It was as though I was trying to climb back under that boat. And I thought, well, who can I go to? I need a therapist. I need a counselor. I need help. I'm poor me, and I'm crying all the time. I'm lying in bed. I'm crying myself to sleep. I'm crying. I'm, you know, I was just a mess. And I was trying to find articles and, and read and trying to figure this out. Well, how do I deal with this? And suddenly I came to my senses, and I remember, wait a minute. I know who's outside that boat. I know who's in control of my life. I know who my life belongs to. I know who my rescue. I know my Redeemer lives. I know who my Savior is. And therapists are fine and important and all of that. But right now, I need a Savior. So I sat down in my chair in my living room. And without even knowing where I was going, I just opened up to the Psalms because Psalms are really good when you're in trouble. They're basically a crying man's diary of very honest, raw, honest prayers. And I opened up just to the place I needed. And God spoke to me specifically, very specifically, to exactly what I was going through. And in one moment, boom, I was free. I'm telling you, I got out of the chair after a few moments of just sitting there and letting God's freedom and love wash over me. I'm telling you, I got out of the chair, and it was as though I had come out from under the boat and I could breathe again. This is the power of Christ in me, like we sing. This is the power of the resurrection. I don't have to stay daily under the effects of sin including the old fallen nature that Satan would love to convince me is still powerful in my life. It's not. It's not. It's not who I am anymore. I am risen with Christ to new life. Amen. Let's pray. If you feel like that gasping, sputtering person under the boat today, longing to be free, you may want to take some time to sit with God like I did and say, okay, you're the only one who can save me, and I'm crying out for you to help me. Or you may want to, even now in this moment, pray this prayer with me. It doesn't, it can be your own made up prayer. There's no formula, there's no correct prayer to pray. The only ingredients are if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead you shall be saved. 
pray this prayer with me silently there as you're sitting and agree with me and make this prayer your own if that's where you are today. Father God, today I recognize my need for a Savior. I recognize that I felt I have been drowning under the weight of my sin. Even if it's the sin of smug hypocrisy and self-righteousness. An arrogant feeling and belief that I don't need you, God. If it is true that you rose from the dead, would you reveal yourself to me? I open my heart to that today. I am willing to take the risk of believing, trusting that you will connect with my faith, my willingness, what little I can give you. I trust that you as a sovereign God will connect with that and come crashing through my unbelief. I need a savior in Jesus, I do confess. I believe you died for me. You bore my sin on the cross. You took it to the grave. I identify with that. With the death of my old self that has not served me and others well. I say goodbye to that today. I want to come out of the grave new and free. I want to walk in newness of life with you, Lord Jesus. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and dwell inside me and begin to teach me who you are so that I can then understand who I am, an image bearer of Almighty God. Save me, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. If you prayed that prayer or something like that, or you came to some new kind of understanding of who God is today, let someone know. Don't just forget about it. Talk about it and open up the word of God and let him speak to you. Amen. You may be dismissed, and uh, we will see you, those of you uh, who come to our Wednesday night. We're here on Wednesday nights at 6.30 for our Revelation study, and then we will be here Saturday night at 6 o'clock for our big um, worship gathering. You may be dismissed.